This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Virtual education had its earliest successes at Florida Virtual School, a statewide public school in Florida founded in 1997. Since then, virtual education has spread across the United States so that by 2020, according to the U.S. Department of Education, there were 691 schools that were fully virtual, and they were educating nearly 300,000 students as of that time. But in the wake of the COVID pandemic, virtual schooling has come under heavy criticism from researchers, teachers, parents, and students alike. When nearly every public school in the United States began teaching online, many parents became unhappy with the quality of instruction their child was receiving. Research showed that less learning and more social isolation and emotional distress was occurring if a child was taught at online rather than at school. And other research shows that students learn less at virtual schools. But Julie Young, the founder of the first statewide public virtual school in Florida, remains committed to the field. She is currently a vice president of education outreach at Arizona State University, and she's the senior advisor to the Arizona Preparatory School, an online school administered through the university. I am delighted to have Julie Young with me on the Education Exchange today. Julie, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. Well, Julie, what went wrong during the COVID pandemic? Why were so many parents and students unhappy with the digital learning experience? I think it's important to acknowledge, Paul, that the struggle was real. Uh, yes, I am a massive proponent of virtual education, but I am a proponent of virtual education done well. What happened during COVID is we basically overnight put educators in a position of having to teach in a manner of which they had never taught before with tools they had never used before and were not trained to, um, to use to facilitate the classroom. Um, you add that to the fact that now all of our students are home with their parents and their parents are trying to work at the same time. Uh, there was less than satisfactory direction to the parents on how do they facilitate their children at home. Um, so we had a, we had a, it was just a complete perfect storm of what could go wrong did go wrong. I think what it taught us though, is the fact that, you know, virtual education has been around for 25 years in K-12. It's been around longer for higher ed. And it has been kind of seen as this thing over to the side that it's there. Um, it could be used if it's a last resort. It can be used if I run out of options, uh, but now it is mainstream. And so I think one of the things that's super important about what went wrong was that people are very aware of what should happen in order for it to be right. The unfortunate thing I think that the, the, the major unfortunate thing about what went wrong was the fact that almost every state, if not every state, has some type of virtual school that is, um, is thriving. And so every state had the resources and the tools, the know-how um, uh, and the opportunity to lean in to those virtual schools that that was, that was what they do, that's what they do best and utilize them uh, to, to roll this out in a much more proficient way, and, and they did not. 
So, uh, yeah, I, I think you're right that somehow uh, this experience has given uh, people a, a lot of information about what didn't work out and, and what we need to have to, to work on to improve things. But has virtual learning continued to increase since the pandemic has subsided? What, what's the, what's, I, I gave you statistics up to 2020 because that's what you get from the U.S. Department of Education. But do we have any information since then that indicates whether or not this is being used less or more or what what do you know about that yeah i think i think the actual participation at this point in time is somewhat flat because it was so um over uh overblown obviously during covid i'll use asu prep um digital as an example uh prior to covid we had around 800 900 full-time students uh, within three months, we had 4,000 plus students. Uh, today, three years later, we have somewhere in the neighborhood of about 37, 3,800. The cool thing about that is, is that we know that the students that are there now are there because they want to be in that environment, not because they have to or because they have to make a choice of being home or being in a virtual environment. And so uh, that's a huge win. Many virtual schools have certainly lost enrollment since COVID, a significant uh, loss in enrollment, which would be to be expected. I think though, it, it, it again has brought visibility to what a quality program looks like. And I think has really put everyone on notice, uh, parents on notice that they should really understand their 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 child's circumstance and their in, in terms of their educational environment and the facts that they do have these choices. So um, I don't think it has damaged virtual learning in the way that I think we were all holding our breath when we were watching what was going on around us. Um, I do think it's kind of elevated it to uh, a level where people want to understand it. Okay, so what is quality virtual learning then? We know that what happened during the pandemic in many places was not so good. I had two granddaughters in my house for about a week while they were studying. And the older one who has a lot of, you know, self-regulation and good executive functioning, as they say, um, she did fine. But the younger one, at that point in her life, you know, when I saw her looking at the screen and mainly she was looking outside at the sun and the trees and she didn't really I don't think she was paying much maybe she was paying more attention than I think but I don't think so so um so how do you keep students engaged what is quality what is makes it a quality experience well I think first and foremost uh one of the greatest mistakes that we made during the pandemic was putting kids in front of a zoom a uh, circumstance like we are doing now all day long and trying to replicate a classroom in a Zoom room. Uh, so that was um, the greatest mistake in my mind that was made. Quality education, quality virtual education does not put a child in front of a, uh, a screen all day long. And this balance between um, how much time is synchronous and how much time is asynchronous. And as a student ages and as they're, they're you know, move to a higher grade, um, there's less need for as much synchronous uh, in engagement. 
and uh, more opportunity for those students to work uh, independently in a, a very personalized format. So if, if I were describing, or if I am describing uh, a quality virtual education program, there are several factors. Number one, uh, a, robu a robust and a well-positioned curriculum. Uh, going back again to COVID, uh, we had teachers that were forced to create lessons in an online format of which requires a lot of training and a lot of time. And not only did they not know how to do it, but those who would be supervising them also did not have, know how to do it. So that robust curriculum that's well-designed for a virtual experience is super important. Um, with that, uh, interactivity. Uh, those, those lessons are engaging and that they're interactive and even more so than what would be needed in a regular classroom uh, because of the, the way that we have to gain the students' attention. So video, simulations, interactive exercises with other students and with their teachers, um, and other resources that just keep students actively involved in the learning process. Um, now, we have a lot of adaptive curriculum and that adaptive curriculum is allowing us to personalize uh, in the way that we used to have to do um, manually at Florida Virtual School back in the day. And uh, so those, those adaptive learning tools, um, as much as we can use those to individualize the student's progress and help the teacher, because that's very time consuming, uh, really, really adds to the quality of the program. So if I'm, if I'm understanding this correctly, you're telling me that say, for example, in mathematics, if a student knows their fractions, you can go on to the decimal uh, points or go on to the next stage. Is that sort of what you're meaning? Yeah, you, you, you sort of start at the point where they don't know the material and you try to bring them through that stage to the next stage. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Paul, you nailed, probably the key component of a quality virtual program. Um, we assess a student as they come to us. We identify where they are academically, and then we give them the reins to be able to um, have the agency to have a personalized path to take them where they need to go, where they want to go. So um, giving, you know, and that requires a lot of training on the teacher's uh, point as well. Um, that's Teachers see that as very difficult, as you might imagine. But if all of a sudden you have these adaptive tools and, oh, by the way, artificial intelligence is going to help us with that a great deal, within a matter of seconds, I can design a lesson for a student that is very specific to exactly what they need, where they are, and what their interests are. Is that available now? I mean, artificial intelligence is such a fast-moving space. I'm not quite sure where we are in that space. So is this literally available today so that a teacher who wants to, uh, okay, she has a boy in the class who's really into baseball and wants to use baseball statistics. Is that, can you can you really uh, teach some, yes. some, yeah. Yes, in fact, I could right now go into chat GPT and I could say, you know, write me a lesson at fifth grade level for right angles um, for a male student that is uh, interested in um, baseball and hockey. And within a matter of seconds, I would have a lesson. 
And I can also give the standards. I can say, make sure you hit these standards. And, um, and I would have a lesson. And so if you think about what that will enable a teacher to do in terms of how they can personalize an education experience for a student to make sure they are truly targeting where that student um, has needs, it's an incredible, an incredible opportunity. So, but now is there still a place for synchronous learning? So you've sort of said that maybe we should have all asynchronous learning, but I get very nervous when I hear about that because I don't know if people want to just be engaging with, you know, uh, you know, some kind of a avatar all the time. So how do you get real people into this story? So first of all, I didn't say all asynchronous. I did say more asynchronous as a um goes up in grades and is a little bit older and more sophisticated. I think synchronous um, components are absolutely critical to a quality program. Not only do they need to come together with their teacher and have and and build relationships and have these conversations and know how to talk to adults, but they also need to have synchronous uh, opportunities with with their peers. Another characteristic of a quality program. Um, where they have the opportunity to come together, work in small groups, to collaborate, design, um, and 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 just learn how to do cooperative exercises with with other students. So, what's the right balance? Is it fifty fifty? Is it? Um, I know it changes as the student ages, but so let's let's say you you've got a sophomore in high school. Uh, what would be the 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 right balance? Would you? And I know yep. this is different for individuals, but on average, yeah. On average, I would say once you get into the sophomore, junior, senior kind of um, zone, you're looking at 70, 30, 80, 20 um, for a student who is really high academics, um, doing quite well, and, and possibly a senior, they might even look at 90, 10. But I think it's super important to also quantify the fact that um, that synchronous component, in my opinion, is still the only silver bullet that we have. And it's not quite silver, but it is the best um, the best bullet that we have in terms of identifying academic integrity for our students. We can use turn it in. We can use um, all different kinds of uh, plagiarism tools. But at the end of the day, uh, what we have found over 25 years of experience is a discussion-based assessment or what we call a DBA um, is the best tool to really understand what a child knows and what they don't know and whether or not they're doing their own work. Well, would you uh, advocate uh, one-to-one examinations where the teacher actually is in conversation with a student on a one-to-one basis and asks them about the material they apparently have uh, mastered? Yep. And that's exactly what a DBA is. We started doing DBAs literally in the um, early 2000s. I don't know what a DBA stands for. It's a a discussion-based assessment. Discussion-based assessment. Discussion-based assessment. And um, so what what the teacher is trained to do is to look at uh, a student's work, uh, what what they have done, what they've turned in, what the data says, and then to identify certain key areas where it appears that the student is doing quite well, 
understands the material and then look at the areas where there's gaps. And so the teacher will actually design a discussion-based assessment or a DBA specifically for that student. Um, they'll spend anywhere from, you know, 30 minutes to an hour with a student, depending on that student's needs and how into it the student gets. Um, the students have actually learned to love discussion-based assessments. They used to be terribly afraid of them, uh, but again, recognizing that we have done a really good job of making those a, a golden opportunity for them to feel like they get to come forward, share what they've learned, have this one-on-one -on -one time with this teacher that, um, uh, that they have this incredible relationship with. And um, that is really what we consider to be the highest form of determining academic integrity. But there's a lot of concern out there about social isolation and emotional uh, distress and people feel like the uh, pandemic uh, made that a much more serious problem than ever before. And so, uh, and people say that's a problem inherent to online learning. So how do you deal with that um, really important dimension of people's lives? So I, I think to your point, we, we have to, be very transparent about the fact that obviously if a student is in a full-time virtual program, they are working at home. They may be with siblings. They may be actually in a micro school setting where they actually have other neighbors that are also involved and they may be working with a small group of five kids or 10 kids or what have you, but they're not in that school setting with 20 to 30 students in a classroom. So um, recognize that. Going back again to what's a quality program, a quality program does recognize that and does integrate opportunities for kids to come together both online and in person. So the in-person can be done in a variety of ways. Obviously, the more geographically spread out you are, um, it makes the in-person more difficult. But let me give you a couple of scenarios. So if I look for uh, most specifically Arizona and ASU Prep Academy, there are multiple opportunities throughout the years, throughout the year for kids to come to campus, um, to go to different types of field trips, to a museum. They're all optional. We invite parents, we invite siblings, and it really is an opportunity for teachers and parents and learning success coaches to come together and just have fun together. Um, again, that's all optional. And I recognize the fact that that can also be um, an equity challenge because some parents can bring their kids, others may not. Um, so then that online socialization becomes very important, as well as talking with the parents about what kind of socialization are they doing from the home front. Our learning success coaches who partner with our teachers are really, really focused on that family aspect of uh, not what kids learn, but how kids learn and how kids thrive and how parents can help support kids um, to, to really thrive in this education experience. And so it's a conversation, a transparent and, and important conversation with a parent um, with a, or, or a guardian about how how are you making sure that your kids have access to other kids if indeed it's not through us? Um, so I think that's super important. And in Florida, 
what we did because we were, you know, very large. Um, when I left in 2014, we had 2,500 staff members, several people that were in every, you know, every district, 67 districts. And so we had team captains in those districts and those team captain, captains would not or, only organize activities for our employees within their geographic region. So they got together, got to know each other, had some social activity together, but they also did that with families. And so even though that I might live in Miami and most of my students are in the panhandle, I would go, I would help organize activities for the students and the families that lived in the Miami-Dade area. So we would organize field trips and activities for um, the kids in all over the state with whoever might live in that district. And it was just part of your obligation and responsibility of being an employee of Florida Virtual School at that time. That does sound like one way of addressing these kinds of issues. Um, uh, but, um, you know, it, it, it's not gonna be, you know, how about the students who are online in some you know distant place or a rural community and you know it's it's not like it's that easy to together together how 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 do you deal with that or or yeah. do you just to accept you can't deal with that no 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 that's when we try to do as much as we can do with online socialization let me give you a, another example um we have different teachers that actually do online recess for students who are younger or even in middle school. And so those kids can come together and they do different kinds of fun activities. They play charades, they play tic-tac-toe, they um, play hangman, they play chess. Um, there are different kinds of social kind of gaming activities that they come together with uh, their teacher and a group of their peers and do different types of social functions. And so I think, you know, you do the best you can with the resources that you have for the students who are in those circumstances. But again, that goes back to how do we talk to parents who are, you know, um, with their children in that remote location to talk about how important it is that that child has socialization opportunities. Right. So Julie, tell me whether homeschooling and virtual learning are beginning to blend together because a homeschooling seems to have increased substantially since the pandemic, maybe doubled in, in this uh, the reach. And at the same time, homeschooling is changing. People who are homeschooling their children are <clears throat> less likely to say, I can do everything myself, and more likely to say, I need to build bridges, build bridges with like-minded parents or build bridges with um, with schools through the virtual process and or maybe send their child to school for a couple of days. So there's all kinds of, it's, we've, we've noticed this at a conference that you were at at Harvard just a couple of weeks ago that this whole field is sort of changing and there's all kinds of multiple varieties that are mixing together. So how does virtual schooling play into that mix? So I, I think we have a beautiful scenario that we are looking at right now, um, which I'm super excited about um, in terms of what, what, what our micro schools or our hybrid school programs. And so just uh, a quick description, a micro school, uh, 
it, it, it comes in many flavors, as I always I always say, virtual learning comes in many flavors. So do micro schools. Um, at ASU Prep, our micro schools, we have four at the moment, and they are each positioned on one of our ASU campuses. And um, so our digital students, our full-time digital students, have the opportunity to go to that campus um, one, two, or three days a week, depending on the program. And they actually uh, take advantage of the professors at that location and the, the, all of the assets that that campus has to offer. And whatever the, uh, the campus's main disciplines are, that's what the students study while they're there. So for example, one of them is on our, um, what we call our mixed campus, which is the new Sydney Portier uh, Film School at ASU. And so those kids actually get to go to this incredible building with all these incredible assets and um, learn all about film and media and create plays and film and all those kinds of things. So imagine that for all different uh, campuses and different disciplines. Other micro schools are forming all over the country in people's homes. They're, they're forming in storefronts. They're forming in churches. And they are, uh, you know, like you said, like-minded parents that are coming together, wanting a different kind of a solution for their students where it's not at home, but it is at a location with other students, with educators, and having a school experience. So with that, in order to do that efficiently, um, digital assets are being used broadly. And so as a, again, going back to ASU Prep, our students are enrolled at ASU Prep Digital. That's their content. That's where their virtual teachers are coming from. When they go to the location where they're on site, they have a learning guide, they have professors that engage with them. Um, it's really, uh, 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 in my opinion, the opportunities are so broad. Um, I know at the conference last week, and certainly with with um, one of our employees who has started their own micro school out in California, um, they use all kinds of social spaces. They use the YMCA. They use, um, you know, the playground down the street. They use the, you know, the the, the location that does arts and crafts for kids. And so, um, oftentimes they're at a different location every day doing these different activities with with students. So I think it's an endless opportunity that virtual education can absolutely feed. So at ASU, are you able to actually prepare students for college? Can they get a diploma that makes it? How do they convince colleges that they're ready to go to college? I know a lot of parents are more worried about that than anything else. Does my child have the diploma that, that necessary for them to move forward? How do you yeah. just deal with that? Well, again, I think a, a quality virtual education program is accredited. And, you know, at ASU, ASU Prep Academy is 12 schools. 11 of those schools are brick and mortar schools. And then we have the one K through 12 digital school. And they're all accredited. And so um, it, it is super important to also mention that all of our students are actually starting to take college coursework while they're in high school, definitely at different levels definitely at different amounts. We have uh, had kids that have graduated with upwards to 60 credits last year. Uh, we want all of our students to actually graduate with 12 to 15 credits. Um, 
and really give them the opportunity to kind of learn how to do college material with some training wheels along the way so that when they do get to college, the data does bear out that a student who actually takes college opportunities in high school has a much better chance of being successful in college and actually completing with a college diploma. So um, I, I think you have to be incredibly aware of that, going back to that transparency. If a student actually just sits behind their computer all day, interacting only with content and that computer, um, are they going to be able to know how to carry on a conversation with an adult or their peers? And what does collaboration mean to them? All of those things have to be taken into account. So research is, there's a dispute out there with respect to research. On the one hand, some people are saying, look, at I look at kids who at one point in their life, they're going to a brick and mortar school. On another point in life, they're learning online. And when I do that, I see they're learning more when they're in the brick and mortar school, the same person. It's not like they're different people. They're the same people. Ben Scafidi at the conference that we're talking about said, well, but they're not the same person uh, because you don't go online from the classroom unless there's some kind of a reason for that. Now, how, how do you come out on this issue? I can tell you, Paul, that in my experience over the last 25 years, uh, we have seen so many students who were considered to be behavior problems, failures, poor performers, um, distractors, uh, anxiety-ridden, uh, troubled students. We have seen so many students who have come to us and have blossomed from thinking and believing that they are not only not a learner, but school is not for them, to by the end of the experience, deciding that you know they want to be Paul Peterson at Harvard. And they learn that they are learners. And I think it has to do with the fact that what Ben said, I think is super true. Um, all of a sudden I don't have 25 kids around me watching me. I have a teacher in front of me that is going to um, uh, get to know me as an individual student without the distractions of other students in the classroom. I have a teacher who's gonna determine where I am academically and exactly what I need. And I have a teacher in our program who knows that he or she is only successful if their students are successful. And um, so, so I do think that, that students bring a different self to the online environment once they are able to take a breath and realize that they have space to be themselves and that they have nothing to prove. And I don't think that we as adults really have any um, true understanding or grasp of what the peer pressure is like in our schools at every level. Well, thank you, Julie, for that illuminating uh, window on the field of virtual education in the post-pandemic era. I appreciate your uh, all your knowledge, background, and experience, and thank you for joining us on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's been my pleasure. I have been speaking with Julie Young, Vice President of Education Outreach at Arizona State University and Senior Advisor to the Arizona Preparatory School, an online school administered through the university.
I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern time.